everybody. Welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. Today, I have the special opportunity to welcome the second guest that has had a very big impact on my spiritual growth and development through the last few years. And and it's funny because during the time we were around each other, she would introduce all of her friends as her good friends. So today I get to turn the tables and say, I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, Jen Manleaf. Jen, thank you so much for being on Redrawing the Bath today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I, I want to start just by talking about your spiritual journey um, from when you first encountered Christ to, to where you are now. Sure. Um, I grew up in a Christian home, sort of. My dad wasn't a believer, but my mom and grandma who lived with me were. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to church all my life. And when I was seven or eight, my grandma was dying of complications around diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wasn't afraid to die. And even as a seven or eight year old, I was very analytical and wanted to know why that was uh, and started figuring out the Jesus thing. Um, had been going to church, walked the aisle at a Southern Baptist revival and <laughs> thought, great, that's done. Check that off the list um, and began being very good at being very good. Um, I, all of my life have been able to figure out the strategy of how to win at things. And so I won at school, I won at soccer and I won at being a Christian. I was really good at being really good. Um, in high school, I was pegged as a student leader. Um, kids in my youth group would get grounded from everything, but hanging out with me, uh, (laughs) parents would say why can't you be more like Jen Manleaf (laughs) this this was very good for my ego and for my at being good uh and then when I was 21 I was a youth leader with our junior high group and um in bible college to become well my major was youth ministry I didn't know if I was going to be a youth pastor or not but was on that track uh, had a best friend who was sort of the golden boy of youth ministry, if I was the golden girl of youth ministry. Hmm. Uh, and he ended up having an affair with a married woman. And when it got found out, he drove off into the desert of Las Vegas. We were in Arizona at the time uh, and hmm. ended up killing himself. And that was a huge wake up call in my life and faith. Hmm. Uh, when that happened, I recognized that I was on the same path as he was, That that if my secret sins were brought out. If anyone knew I wasn't perfect, um, I would die. That, that in a very tangible and real world, the wages of sin were death. Mm -hmm. And so that coincided, uh, with me being a young life leader. And a couple months after all of this happened in the summer, um, I was at a young life leadership retreat and we were doing a big concert of prayer. Uh, and someone up at the front was saying, now we're going to call out adoration to God. And people would do that all over the room. Uh, now we're going to call out our thanksgiving. And when it got to, now we're going to call out our, now we're going to admit our sins and ask for forgiveness. Someone a row ahead of me and a few seats over said, um, I confess that, that I struggle with lust every day and I don't know how to stop. And I nearly fell out of my seat because that's not the sins that you confess out loud. You confess, I don't read my Bible enough. I disrespect my parents, all of the safe things. Hmm. Uh, 
and young life from that moment on became a place where I really started to get real with God and with my faith and stopped being so perfect. Um, and actually interacting in a relationship. It was the first time I ever admitted that I wasn't perfect and that I struggled and um, that, that life wasn't all of that. Um, so with that, went on, was a volunteer Young Life leader for a few years, went on staff for about eight years and thought I was gonna do Young Life for the rest of my life. Um, and then <laughs> an old friend called me up and said, hey Jen, come work with me up in this tiny mountain town and do this college thing that I invented uh, a few years ago. And when I hung up the phone with him, I knew that I was going to be moving to Hume Lake to work with the Joshua Wilderness Institute. Uh, knowing yeah. really not much more about it, but just knowing that that's what I was going to be doing. So I moved to Hume, um, learned how to help run a discipleship institute for college-age kids, um, hmm. helped develop that with with my good friend, Rich, who was, was a great person to work with and a great family that I'm still real close with. Um, did that for about eight years. And then as it was time for me to move on, uh, I was just telling Chris before this, about three years before I actually quit, I'm pretty bad at quitting, uh, realized it was time to move on and ended up landing in Seattle, Washington, um, I've been here for about three years. The first couple of years worked with Seattle's Union Gospel Mission in their women and children's recovery program, uh, walking alongside women who are recovering from drugs and alcohol addiction, uh, also in homelessness and helping them stabilize and get back on their feet. And then about a year and a half ago, um, through no expectation or intention of my own, uh, changed jobs to be working with my church as the director of our uh, drop-in center for people in homelessness and economic hardship. So hmm. that's that's sort of the overarching nutshell version. Hmm. That that that's actually the first time I've ever heard your your full story. I, I don't want to use testimony because that's yeah. that's kind of corny. But the, that's fair. That, you, have, the, you weren't very often in girls' nights when that got shared. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was not. And and just for anyone who's listening, that's how I met Jen was through that Joshua Wilderness. Uh, Institute, which is, as I was telling Jen before this started, is kind of what triggered my whole deconstruction journey. So uh, thanks a lot for helping me get farewelled. Um, <laughs> hey, me too. Um, it's okay. <laughs> but we, what were some of the, obviously, Young Life, Hume Lake, both, and and the, the um, mission in Seattle, all very conservative contexts. And what were some of the things that you were rethinking during your time with either some of, or if not all of those organizations? Yeah. So having been very good at being very good most of my life, uh, I had sort of squirrel squared away all of my beliefs at a pretty early age and just hmm. said, okay, this is the way things are. This is exactly that. And then as probably, probably, at Hume Lake in a pretty conservative environment. Um, but even before then, when I was at a conservative Baptist Bible college or um, going to conservative churches, there were things that didn't quite make sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. Complementarianism, you know, the, the whole men lead and women support idea um, 
was something that never quite sat right with me. Like I could get behind that men and women are create are equal, but different. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't disagree with that. I agree that the, the complementary nature of men and women shows the fullness of who God is. Uh, but I had some pretty strong issues with how that worked out in practice in my life mm. of um, being dismissed or held back from using the gifts and leadership that I had. Uh, that that's one, one of the things that Rich, who was my boss, did amazingly well was fought to get me at any table that he could. There were things that he, he would be put on committees and things like that. And he would send me instead, which was pretty disorienting for the way Hume worked. Uh, <laughs> a decision maker at a table that, you know, um, that was mostly all men. Uh, but that was sort of the beginning of, wait, I had this squared away and this doesn't seem to be how it's working out in my life. And as those mm. things would come up, there there have been several things over the years that I'm like, wait, as I'm learning about this, there's not just one way to think about this. And this can't be what this meant. Um, and so it's just been over the years, a, a quiet, well, quiet when I was in conservative circles. There's a lot more conversation now that I'm in less conservative circles. Um, uh, figuring out like, I, I'm not sure that I sign on to this thing anymore. Mm. Um, in the more conservative circles and places like Hume, there was definitely um, figuring out who was ready to have those conversations and who wasn't. Uh, yeah. But every, everyone knew. I rolled into Hume with an Obama bumper sticker on my car. Uh, just before the 2008 election. So everybody knew where I stood politically. Oh, that's Uh, amazing. It it was a whole thing. It turned out. Uh, (laughs) But in that process, I learned, okay, who's ready to have these conversations and who's not, who's going to just think Hmm. I'm not a Christian and who's going to, who's going to not only dismiss me, but question the work I'm doing at Joshua. Um, Hmm. And so, got pretty savvy about where, where to speak out and where to just let people learn to trust me a little more. Uh, But had some safe people to really process things and, and figure things out that, that um, it really started with figuring out like, wait, this doesn't seem to be the way Jesus thought of or interacted with or treated women in the context of his ministries. Hmm. Um, and how did we get here? How do we, how do we, how, how is this the way we're doing this? Hmm. Um, a, a weird anecdote. Uh, I, Chris, this will make tons of sense to you. So okay. off the summer with summer staff, uh, with communion at the end of summer staff orientation every year. And they would, um, invite all of the managers and directors down to serve communion. Um, and I realized probably about two or three years in that it really bothered me that all the managers and directors were men. Um, mm. It would be one thing if they felt that like this is a spiritual office and we believe men should hold this or whatever. Like I don't necessarily agree with that, but I could get behind that. Mm-hmm. But I became aware that like, wait, we don't have any women in leadership and, women can manage something 
Like there's, there's not any reason or biblical mandate that women shouldn't manage things. Uh, so really started unraveling that and probably about halfway through, uh, had a talk with Rich, who was my boss and said, can I have permission to not be at this mandatory event? Cause it just makes me angry. And, mm-hmm. and not only did Rich hear that really well, um, and understand, but then he started working to, uh, affect change in that area of like, Hey, why don't we have women in management positions? And hmm. why, why is this situation? And so he, he was great at being a voice when my voice couldn't be heard. Um, but hmm. that was, that was a real piece of me uh, wrestling with some things and say, thinking like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem like what I'm seeing the way Christ is, is, is interacting with people. Hmm. Yeah, that that's so good. You, I, I I really resonate with, I mean, in in much lesser ways, but I, I I definitely resonate with the idea of of going through this process of unraveling, as as you so well put it, kind of in in silence and and privately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know so many people are going through that. What and and still staying in conservative circles, for those people what what would be your advice for someone who's who's kind of rethinking whether it be complementarianism or uh, other theological issues what would your advice be to that person if they wish to stay in that kind of context yeah so i was at hume for 8 years which is a lot of years hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> as i mentioned started out with a pretty tumultuous uh I don't know if it's a misstep or just a step that caused a lot of problems of my little bumper sticker. Um, And (laughs) the way I navigated that was reminding myself that every person there loved the Lord and, and wanted to serve them the best way they knew how Um, Hmm. that, that even though at times that felt like their main priority was making my life miserable or, ruining me <laughs> that 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 couldn't be their main priority that their main priority because no, no one lives in a tiny mountain town an hour and a half away from fresno because they just want to wreck someone's life <laughs> like that they're, <laughs> they're doing the best they can to figure out their faith and if i look at the overarch of my faith i didn't think or understand half the stuff I think and understand now 10 years ago and that Mm. being able to have grace for people to be on the path that they're on um, and recognize like, okay, just like I'm doing my best to figure this out. They probably are too. Um, And that that's the way I was able to stay is that recognizing they're probably not trying to wreck me. They probably just don't know me. Um, so it became a goal of mine to be in authentic relationship with people also that, that 100% my initial reaction was to withdraw, protect myself. Don't say anything to anyone because they're just going to hear it the wrong way. Hmm. Um, and then it became a stepping out in, in faith of like, if you knew me, you wouldn't be as afraid of me. Like if you knew Hmm. that I'm doing my best to follow Jesus and do what, what he says. And maybe we just are landing in different ways to do that. Um, that, that's my advice is that 
when you feel like withdrawing and protecting yourself, do the opposite, reach out. And it may, may be really painful because you can't guarantee that the other person is not going to be afraid, is not going to change, is not going to think you're not a Christian or mm. a believer or whatever terms you want to use. But it's, it's futile to just go into self-protection mode, especially if you're going to stay. If you're going to stay, you need to stay and be in relationship. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, so. That's great. And, and obviously you've, you've moved into a different context. So, so tell, tell us a, a little bit about what that context is like now. Yeah. So now I um, work for a church I've been going to since I came to Seattle. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. Quest Church. And it's awesome. We we're very diverse, uh, intentionally multicultural, uh, multi-age, multi-economic, multi-multi-multi is what we call ourselves. <laughs> um, and in that diversity, uh, it's it's been a really learning and stretching thing for me to understand the other. I think I would have had a much harder time. Uh, with my suburban evangelical white upbringing, um, which has a lot of inherent privilege in it, had I not been through situations where I was othered as a woman, um, feeling outside of the power structure, feeling uh, misunderstood by the power structure. Uh, But coming to Seattle, both at the mission and at my church, uh, really interacting with and working with people who spend their lives as the other, um, whether that's because of their race, their economic status, because they're in homelessness, um, and really learning how to understand, advocate for, and love people exactly where they're at. Um, My church has been huge in that. We do a faith and race conference every Mm -hmm. year uh, that really digs into how our faith intersects with what's going on racially, um, listening mm-hmm. to voices that we don't always hear. It's been super good. And now uh, as the director of our drop in center for people in homelessness, um, another layer of other of people who are in economic hardship and can't make ends meet. Most of our, the population I work with um, are in chronic homeless, meaning have been homeless for three or more years or, uh, seven or more times in that time period. Um, and most of the people we work with are living on the streets homeless, like not even sheltered. Um, hmm. So giving them dignity, seeing them, helping meet some of their tangible needs um, has, is, is just a really different place than little Jenny from the suburbs was at where I didn't really want for anything. I didn't have, I didn't have everything I wanted, but I had everything I needed and got to grow up playing soccer and all of those things. So understanding mm-hmm. how, how people who are in the position of other live and what their needs are and how I can use my place of racial and economic privilege to advocate for that has been my last few years. Hmm. No, that's, that makes perfect sense. It, it it's amazing what can happen and what can be accomplished when we step outside of our own our own stories and narratives to to meet with someone different than ourselves and 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 try to in, not enforce impact change into the situation but according to the context that's appropriate so a lot of people 
seem to think that that once you leave kind of popular evangelicalism, you you stop doing the things that, that you used to do. And even some people within the, the deconstruction slash ex-evangelical context are kind of like, yeah, my theology is changing. And now, like, I don't know what to do. Um, where, where would you encourage people to start? Um, I would say wherever you're at is okay. Uh, for me, part of that transition, I realized I did a lot of things because I was checking off boxes and I was being really good hmm. at being really good. And there have been seasons in my life where I don't go to church. You know, I um, don't go to church because it's just checking off a box. Then mm. not because it's a place where I feel loved and spiritually fed, which right now I do, but there have been seasons where it's like, I'm just doing this because I feel failure if I don't. And so mm. I've had to reframe what church means to me. Um, reading my Bible regularly, man, I could show you the checkoff sheet on that growing up. <laughs> And now I find that I commune with God in totally different ways that, that I've even had to over the years, pick up translations and Bibles that aren't NIV because that becomes a textbook to me and becomes hmm. wrote and becomes, I, I read a familiar phrase and then it's autopilot, but I've got, uh, I don't know. It's, living or something it's got hippie pictures in it i love it um from the 70s <laughs> that i can interact with in a new and fresh way uh that that doesn't throw me back into the transactional performances of being very good at being a christian um mm. and that i don't feel bad if i don't read my bible for weeks if i'm interacting with god in other ways if i'm praying if i'm getting fed with podcasts in my car on the way to and from work that um, I've had to go through a long period of being okay with letting go of the former rituals of my faith because hmm. they were serving my ego, not serving God um, hmm. in my deconstruction, in my figuring all this out, there've been new rituals and weirdly they're kind of high church rituals like celebrating Lent or um, yeah. so, some of those practices, the book of prayer that, that, you know, in my Baptist heyday were like <laughs> the, a Catholic church has got it all wrong. Um, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but because those rituals aren't associated with me, doing all the things so I could get an A in Christianity, I'm able to encounter God in new and different ways by these ancient rituals that people have been doing forever. Now, mm. for some people, those might be the rituals they need to let go of. But for me, it's, it's having a lot of grace for myself to not have to be the perfect Christian. Cause for, I, that, that was really tied to what my identity was. If I was doing all the right things, if I was, volunteering for everything and leading everything and checking off all the did you do your devo boxes um and so i i look kind of like a terrible christian but that's okay <laughs> you know that's that the parts that are good and connecting are really good and connecting and mm -hmm. i've just let go of the things that aren't good and connecting 
Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. It, it it's so interesting to see so many people within kind of our our theological context go back to those high church traditions and and it kind of confounds me in a lot of ways that we didn't expect to draw sweet water from a much older well. <laughs> yes, like yes. That, we had all of the answers in our, you know, 100-year-old tradition. Oh yeah, rapture theology, whatever you name it, we we yeah. got it. The Catholics were wrong about it. But but speaking of that, you, it, it's amazing to me because to me, and, and I'm sure to so many others that know you, you've always been a person of action. You've always been a person that's that's really stewarded people well and cared for people. Um, I definitely know I felt that way, and, and I, I can think of so many others that would say, yeah, I, I agree with that. And speaking of, of deeper wells, I think of the the gospel. So, Jen, to you, what is the gospel, and how does it apply to the actions that we take in life, both for you right now and, and in Joshua and, and in the context that you've served in? Yeah. Um, I think the gospel comes down to love God and love others for me. I think mm. Jesus came to show us the way that that was possible. And, you know, we can get into what his dying on the cross made possible, but I don't think that that's the main point. The main point yeah. is he this possible. He showed us the way. And that, I mean, at Joshua, uh, we said the Shema of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself before every meal. Um, hmm. And you say that enough, it kind of gets into you. Um, yeah. Over, over the years, figuring out how to tangibly love people and not just in a way that um, says the right things, but does the right things has been just, just a goal of mine of how do I love people well? Um, and it's not always comfortable and it's not always easy. And sometimes it's hard conversations. Um, my friend, Michelle, who I used to, well, yeah, I guess used to is the right word, travel the world with, uh, for Mm. young life. Um, she once said to me, uh, that I have a posture of yes, uh, that, that if there's a need, if there's an ask, if there's a, Hey, let's go to Nepal and see what young life's doing there. Um, hmm. my first answer is yes. And then we figure out how to do it. Uh, one of the things I've thought through recently through a conversations with actually another former Joshua student who's working on, um, I want to say his masters. I could be wrong with that. But uh, we were talking about the passage in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats. Uh, and that's a passage I use all the time when talking about the Bridge Care Center. Um, also, hmm. use the message translation because it says, uh, whatever you done, have done for those who are overlooked and forgotten, you've done to me. And I like that so much better than the least of these. Um, hmm. But in that separation, when, when Jesus is talking about the people who says, I never knew you, it's not because they didn't believe the right things or know the right things or have sound doctrine or have the right atonement theory. It's because they didn't do the right things. They didn't love people and feed people and visit them in prison and take care of the, the people who couldn't take care of themselves. It's not about 
right belief in that situation. It's that your right belief leads you to right action. And more and Mm. more, um, I think sound doctrine is important. (laughs) I'm not saying believe whatever you want, but if your beliefs don't lead you to loving other people and caring for them and actively doing things for them, um, then what is it worth? Like, what's the point of it? If it's just about knowing things, that throws me back to my life of checking things off and getting good grades at being a Christian, that Mm. I knew all of the right things. And if they're not leading me to care for people who are overlooked and forgotten, then what's the point, you know, playing in gongs out there. Yeah. No, I, I wonder what would happen if Matthew 25 said something like, and in that day they'll say, Lord, Lord, but our our sub, our, our atonement was penal substitutionary and <laughs> and we believed that people were predestined and that everyone else was a child of wrath. And and Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you, you doers of lawlessness. I Or even in a, in James where it says that even the demons know. Right. Uh, if, it, if it said the same thing, like we, we don't talk about how we practice. We talk about what we know. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways we really get it wrong in America that, that it's about knowing the right things and drawing a tight circle around who's in and who's out based on what you know and what you believe to be true, Hmm. but not caring about who's outside of that circle and who, who are you loving? I would, I would much rather be faulted for letting too many people in than for letting the wrong people in, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to love anyone who's in front of me. <laughs> and, mm. and, and it's hard because there's, especially as I've been working in the addiction world, it's hard to get past our natural trigger towards judgment and move yeah. judgment to understanding. Um, so it's, it's not that like I'm this perfect person or this is super easy. But recognizing if my beliefs lead me to anything but love, they're they're probably not of Jesus. They're probably something I'm doing on my own. Hmm. Yeah. What is love, Jen? Like what? What? Like I feel like so many people have different interpretations of whether it be uh, love one another for God is love or um, love keeps no record of wrongs or, or whatever it is, but. We all we all use this word of, of love people and, and particularly in the context of, of working with people in addiction and homelessness, what is love? Yeah, I think it I think at its core, it's wanting and seeking the best for the other person. Mm. Um, and with that, having compassion and understanding and dignity for them and, and seeing and knowing their story as valuable. Um, Mm. and most of that comes from learning where I've gotten that wrong. Uh, cause I, I can want the best for someone and be a jerk about it. Um, and I can want the best for someone without knowing their story or having compassion or seeing them as a person with dignity. Um, but that's been a huge lesson I've learned over the last few years working with people, especially people in addiction. Um, because there have been stories that I've heard that I'm like, well, of course you're doing meth to not feel that. That makes all the sense hmm. in the world to me. Um, and as I understand 
how trauma plays in and how people's story play in, um, it gets easier and easier to seek understanding. Now, I still get totally frustrated when it appears that people are making terrible choices, um, hmm. but loving them is seeing them as a person, believing in their dignity and autonomy, and still wanting what's best for them and holding out that hope. Um, hmm. So, so with all of this in context, with with the gospel and with love and and with what you're doing, where where would you encourage people to go and do likewise? Like, where do we start? How do we how do we get involved as people that are? Because a lot of, I mean, for for as much bad as we can say about some of the organized church in America, they're the ones that are really, I don't want to say making an impact because sometimes their impact is problematic but they're the ones that are out there doing the work. And in some ways it's very good work. Yeah. Um, but where do trying. we start? Sorry. They're at least trying. Yeah. But with that, where do we, where, where do we start this kind of grassroots Jesus movement, if you will? Yeah. Uh, really tangibly. Um, one of our Joshua speakers, who's a friend of mine, of course, uh, years and years <laughs> ago, <laughs> he, he had to stop coming to Joshua. He like didn't like him so much. Um, oh, man. He spoke out of the book of Exodus and out of Moses's story and, and had three parts that he talked to about. And it stuck with me forever. The first one is what breaks your heart. Look around and see what breaks your heart in your community, in your context, in the context of the world. Because if it's breaking your heart, it probably also breaks God's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, the second piece is what's in your hand, what skills do you have? What do you bring to the table, whether it's through your work or through your hobbies or through your passions? Um, you're already equipped to do something. It just may not look like what you thought helping people look like, uh, at our, uh, drop-in center. We have a, a woman, uh, who comes in every Thursday and gets out her sewing machine and men's clothes. So that some of the clothes that we get donated are torn or ripped or not the right size. And she just sits at her sewing machine and fixes them for people. She has, um, one time I came in and she was sewing, she had cut out the logo from a t-shirt and was sewing it on the back of a guy's jean jacket. Cause he wanted that, that, that we all hmm. have things that we can already do that could be helpful to others. And then the third part is how do you do it? How do you, figure out how to take those next steps. And sometimes it's looking around to see what's already happening and joining it. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's taking a step out and saying, Hey, no one's doing this, but I'm going to start talking and seeing who has shoes that they can give to this organization. Um, that mm-hmm. it's some, sometimes it's stepping out. Most of the time, a great place to start is joining someone who's already doing something. Um, American individualism says, I can solve the problems of the world. (laughs) But a lot of times if we pause, someone else is already working on solving it. And that's a great place to learn how to solve problems. Um, Mm. But we all have something we can give right now. um, And we can do right now. And it can help whatever's breaking your heart. And there, there are a lot of important things and important causes that I see as important, but don't really care that much about, uh, because yeah. I can't care about everything, but I can do mm. things 
about the things I do care about and breaks my heart. And I can trust that there are other people that care about the things that I can't get to. If we're all doing our mm-hmm. part, things are going to get taken care of. And, and that's, that's so funny to hear because you, you care about within the context that you serve in, you care about so many different demographics and, and walks of life. And, and I, I just out of interest and in, in for the people reading who, who care about issues like homelessness and addiction and, and advocacy for the LGBTQ community, what resources or books would you point people to? Yeah. Um, with homelessness and addiction, uh, my learning didn't come so much from books, but from mm-hmm. getting close. Um, mm. That that it wasn't until I was really working in addiction that I started seeing how much trauma and childhood trauma played a part, and then started learning about childhood trauma and that that all of that is academic. So I don't actually, <laughs> off the top of my head, no sources. Um, hmm. But I think I think when you get close to a problem and get proximate to it. Um, that's when you really start to learn from the people in the problem. But then also that brings out the natural, like, oh my gosh, who's, who's already doing things about this? How do I find out about this? What do I want to learn? Um, and for me, then, then the endless Google searches on understanding the problem, same thing with LGBTQ things that it really was getting close to people who are gay and loving Jesus and following Jesus and understanding what their faith journey looks like that really led me to listening to some podcasts and, and understanding the different sort of viewpoints on that, whether you're affirming or not affirming or, you know, open, but not affirming all, all of these ways Mm. the church tends to land. Um, But I think the first step is really just getting close, getting next to people um, to understand them and understand where they're coming from, hearing their stories. Um, mm. I do have a bookshelf full of books of things I've learned. <laughs> um, I figured. But uh, yeah, I don't know if any of them would be, all of them are a response to getting close to people rather than the thing that threw me into getting close to people. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So we're coming to the end of our time. And usually what I'll ask the people that I interview is where can people find you? What are you working on? Um, but I know that we were talking beforehand, particularly about your church moving from being uh, non-affirming to to fully affirming. Um, and in light of that and with with everything else you're, you're doing in, in Seattle, um, if people, for me especially, I mean, I'll be open about it. I, I haven't tithed in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't financially given to a church, but what I have done is I've given to organizations that I know are doing good work. So, and I, and for anyone listening, I, I do know, and I do believe for hundred percent fact that the work that Jen is doing and the people around her are doing is good work. Um, so where can people give to, to equip you guys better to do the work that you're doing to love the, the broken people of Seattle? Yeah, we would love to have you follow along with us at seattlequest.org. Uh, that's that's our church. Um, there are links and buttons on there if you want to give. Or thebridgecarecenter.org, which is the drop-in center that I help run. Um, both of those 
we could definitely use help. But also at seattlequest.org, we've got, you can follow along with our sermon, sermon series. We've got different uh, resources for, for the journey with uh, LGBTQ stuff. We are doing uh, conversations on human sexuality series. But that's really sort of in-house as we figure that out so those aren't recorded or public. But know that we are doing the work as we're moving hmm. that way of um, really looking at theologically and having people in our church uh, who are part of our queer questers group speaking and telling their stories, um, just really doing that work, know that we're doing it. And then maybe yeah. one day it'll be public for everyone. Uh, hmm. but yeah. Follow along with us. Um, and if, if giving is what you want to do, we could definitely use support at the bridgecarecenter.org. If you're in Seattle locally, we could also use your clothes, <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, we would, we would love to have you join us. Yeah, no, and, and I definitely mean that for whoever's listening. This this is work that's that's worthwhile uh, investing in and, and pouring into of, of people who are to to use the the very overly used terminology. People being the hands and feet of Jesus, of being Jesus to 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 those who are overlooked, as Jen said earlier. Um, usually, this is where I close, but you. You gave it a talk to us towards the end of our Joshua experience while we were in Israel about why the Dead Sea is dead. And I think within the deconstruction community, we're learning so much theology and so much, I guess, arguments against some of the things we grew up in that that we can kind of become inflated in 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 our in our thinking and and kind of stop doing things. So I would really love for you just to take a few minutes just to share with me what you shared with us almost four years ago about why the Dead Sea is dead. Yeah, I mean, learning about the Dead Sea was super impacting for me. So I'm glad that I get to pass that on to you hmm. and to others. And it's it really is kind of funny that it's true in any context. It's true for people still in evangelicalism and people who are just deconstructing that um, the Dead Sea is dead because it's the lowest point on earth and all of the, the water pours into it, that, that the Jordan River pours into it. It has a couple other things, I think, that, that pour into it, but it doesn't have an outlet. It, there's nothing going out. So the water all comes in and all of this life and nutrients and algae and all of that from these intakes come in but it just sits there and it, it, as it sits there, the water evaporates out with the sun and all of these minerals are left in there so much so that, that nothing can live in it. It can't sustain fish. Now in, I've learned that it can, there are a few spots where, where it can sustain a little bit of algae, but it becomes so toxic from all of this input um, that, that everything in it is dead. And that's, hmm both in evangelicalism and as you mentioned in deconstruction, we can have so much input and so much knowledge and so much theology um, that if we're not doing anything with it, if we have no outputs, if we have no tangible way to continue that flow, we're just going to sit there and evaporate and become full of minerals that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not doing anything. Um, and I think that also ties back to the Matthew 25 passage and that conversation we just had, 
we can have all the knowledge in the world. Um, and if we're not doing anything with it, if we don't have outlets, if we don't serve and grow and love others, we're going to be gross and dead, just like the Dead Sea. Mm. No, that, that, that talk definitely for, for those of you listening, we had that talk in front of the Dead Sea after we had been in the Dead Sea. Um, and, and it's something that, that I took with me and, and still to the best of my abilities, try to live out, but it, it really did impact me. And, and Jen has impacted me in so many ways. And I'm sure that she is still impacting people. So like I said, please go be on that journey with her and her church and, and at the bridge. And if you feel so led, please support what she's doing, whether with if you're in Seattle with time, what if you're not in Seattle with clothes and, and, and financially. Um, but yeah, Jen, thank you so much for being on. It's been such a blessing to, to talk to you about these things. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it was great to catch up and, and just share thoughts. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely be asking you to come back on soon because there's so many other other questions I have. Uh, great. Thank you.